I am really happy to be here today with Lucas Van Oss, who I met online through the comment section. And uh, I'm going to have Lucas give a little bit longer introduction of himself in just a minute. But before I do that, I want to just tell everybody, I just got back from the Quest for a Spiritual Home Conference in Southern California with Paul Vanderclay, John Verveke, Jonathan Pajot, and John Van Donk. And um, 250 probably just amazing people. And it was so thrilling. I know they recorded all the talks, but I wish they could have recorded all the estuary meetings and mm. all the table talk. And it was just off the hook. We started at 8 a.m. every day and went until 9 p.m. every night. And then a lot of people went out and did sitting around the campfire after that until midnight. So um it was amazing. And I wow. had an opportunity to meet many of my viewers, which was a complete blessing to see people in person. And it was almost as though when you meet people online, there's a certain light coming through the screen. But when you meet them in person, it's almost as though this light exists in between the two of you. So it's like this shimmering light that creates this three-dimensionality and I had never noticed that before about our interactions with other people because we get so used to our normal interactions with other people. But when it's this this new thing, yeah. it's this like shimmery, I don't know how to describe it. It was almost <laughs> transcendent. So <laughs> That's amazing. So, good to have you here, Lucas. So Thank you. why is it that you wanted to come and talk on the meaning code? <clears throat> I didn't know about your channel until quite recently. Uh, my brother, who is also very much into the little corner, uh, is always sending me like new people that he's discovering. And one of those people was Wolfgang Smith. Oh. And you had amazing interviews with him. Um, and also with John Verveke alongside that, which both of us really liked. Like it really sparked something inside of me for sure. And then I found out you also had interests like Robert Persig and um, Austrian economics. And that's also one of my, my deeper interests. And I tend to think that people have, um, well, Wolfgang Smith says vocation is, is God given. And I tend to think that people are made for certain things. And I see in you what I see in myself as well. Like you want to ask the deepest questions. And so I saw so much, similarity there that I felt so pulled by just asking and maybe I got an answer maybe I didn't so uh, <laughs> I'm glad I did I'm very glad I did yeah this is great um, yeah so I am just going to bring up your your email to me because I thought yeah. that was a good place to start um yeah sounds good so um one of the things that you mentioned is that so you're interested in Verveke, Peterson, mm -hmm. Peugeot, Wolfgang yep. Smith, and Robert Breedlove. Mm. And um, you are a Dutch university student studying Egyptology. Correct. <clears throat> and very interested in your philosophical interests. And you are, um, your significant other is a yoga instructor who yes. is at home in the Eastern worldview. And you have more Christian roots. So I told you that I thought it would be a good thing today if we started with your story, how you grew up, yeah, what drove you away from Christianity, and what was the turning point that led you back. Mm. 
So maybe we could start with that. That sounds very good. So I was born in 2001. I was the fifth of six children in the Netherlands. And we, we grew up in quite a, a rural area. So it was not a lot of people around us, but a lot of nature. And it was a very special upbringing. I noticed that from the start compared to the other kids. It, my parents really uh, blessed us with, with so much. And uh, we went to church every week and it was Protestant church. And it was mostly old people and I didn't like the songs <laughs> and it was long sermons. And I guess from a start, I just really didn't, I didn't like that. But my father is extremely passionate uh, about his faith. He's a theologian as well. And he, um, he was always continuing to, to try to make me interested. So we always had to go to church. Um, and when I was about 16, I don't know if you want to hear the whole youth as well. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, whatever you, whatever you think is pertinent. Whatever highlights would yeah. be useful. I think just to go to my primary school, maybe, because I'm going to center it a bit around faith, given the time. Um, sometimes I would be asked, like, what do you think about God? Like, is, it, is he real? Mm -hmm. And from an early age, I was like, well, it isn't a man in the cloud. I'm pretty sure that's not the case. Um, but there's definitely something. So I always had this, this idea of a something, but I didn't like church at all. So I wanted to get out of there as soon as I could. But my parents were very persistent in saying that I had to do something um, that had to do with Christianity until I was 18 every Sunday. So when I was 16, my father and I started to do one-on-one -on -one sessions discussing one of his, uh, his books where he wrote about the historical Jesus. Um, because I was very much interested in history from a young age. I wanted to, to know how people live, to get closer to them. I don't know why that is, but it pulled me somehow. And bit by bit, he, he tried to show me the beauty that he saw in, in this story, the New Testament. It was really his story. He's, so, he's living inside of that. And it, that always stuck with me. But going into high school, I really lost uh, touch with, with my faith. I I lived in ways that I'm not very proud of. I went went out like twice a week. I drank a lot. Um, in the Netherlands, it's quite normal to drink from a young age, like 15, mm -hmm. 16. And so I did a lot of that. And I was not very happy with myself for that time. And I wasn't doing super well in school. I had to redo a year, which I really did not like. And I had a breaking point at some point where I was really failing in school. Um, I wasn't taking care of myself in the proper way. And I just told my dad and my mom, I just didn't understand why they still kept caring for me, why they still loved me and forgave me no matter what. And, and I broke down at some point, I was crying and I was like, why? And he looked me in the eyes and he said, because you're my son. And I said, but that doesn't count because that's blood, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like that's just a cheat code. But the longer I thought about that, the more I saw the value in family um, and in my loving parents. And at some point I just started accepting that love. I don't know what sparked that inside of me, but I just looked back at my life and I saw how many times they forgave me for, 
for lying to them, for being ungrateful. Because like I said, I had such a good upbringing, but I was not grateful for it at all. Um, so those are some highlights from zero to 18, I mm -hmm. guess, just to get the, the faith in there. And in my last year of high school, I had a, I had that turning point, which I discussed. And then I was also thinking that maybe I should just go for it and just finish my, my school in a proper way. So I got really motivated. And that's when I entered the, the self-help section of YouTube. Oh. <laughs> um, this was before I encountered Jordan Peterson. It's like one step before. It's more, uh, it's not really okay. faith oriented at all. It's more just how to, how to be your best self. So and I'd always self-help section is a gateway to Jordan Peterson. <laughs> I believe so. I really okay. believe so. I see it with a lot of young men now. Um, I really wanted to better myself. And I already was going to the gym. I was doing that since 15. That's my one anchor where I was like, that's my discipline. Um, and I just started working for it. And then in my last year, actually, the coronavirus, the coronavirus broke out. And so everything was canceled right before my exams. Wow. <clears throat> That's tough. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was quite a party for me because I was graduated instantly. <laughs> so it was oh, like, so you didn't have to take the exam? I didn't have to take the exam. Oh, my gosh. I thought you meant that you had to do all the, the final teaching and study for the exams online, which would be... No, I was extremely lucky. <laughs> Luckily, I was already on a good spree where I was like, I'm probably going to uh -huh. make it. Um but that sealed the deal. But I wasn't satiated yet. So I wanted to do more. I wanted to start reading. So slowly but surely I got introduced to, to all sorts of uh, to all sorts of books, starting in the more self-help section. Quickly I got onto Jordan Peterson. And once you get into Peterson, I think for many people uh, it can go into a very good direction. At least that's how I perceive it. Where, now, where did you start with Peterson? What was your trajectory? Because I mean, he's got a lot of stuff. He's got all the university lectures. Yes. He's got the biblical lectures. Mm -hmm. He's got some of his tough political stuff where his demeanor kind of puts people off. Yes. Right? So, I mean, there's mm -hmm. a lot of different aspects to Jordan Peterson. So what was mm -hmm. your entry point? I believe it might have been a Joe Rogan podcast, actually. The first one that he did? That's very possible, yes. Because okay. my brother, he was already a big Jordan Peterson fan. And I was watching Joe Rogan when I was 18, I think. Um, so, yeah, I watched those. I thought he was quite an impressive person, uh, very well-spoken mm -hmm. and mostly just truthful. Like it resonated a lot of what, what he said. And, yeah, I guess I just went down a rabbit hole. I tried to, to watch everything I could. So biblical lectures shortly after, I think. And all his personality lectures, maps of meaning. So the whole rabbit hole, basically, uh, that was very good. But I have to recenter for a bit because now we're at 18, I think, graduated mm -hmm. uh, the lockdown. That's when I really started to get discipline. I got really into uh, running every single morning. I started waking up at 5 a.m. With the self-help culture, you get all these, these motivations. But it was discipline without, without, without love, like without agape, if you know what I mean. It didn't have that, um, that loving side to it. But it was very useful, I think, for a lot of people. It can be a good trajectory to, to go through a bout of real discipline. And so I took a gap year, 
before I went into university and I did a lot of that. And this is also around the time where I discovered people speaking about um, psychedelics, which this is before I came back to Christianity. So I think it might be an important thing to, uh, mm-hmm. to mention. And I heard people speak about ayahuasca. I was on Joe Rogan's podcast actually as well with, um, with Graham Hancock. And he spoke about this compound ayahuasca. I don't know if you're familiar, Karen. Yes, yes, yes. I, I mean, I'm, I'm familiar from hearing. <laughs> yes, I think Peterson. Yeah, I've heard a lot it. about this and and heard some testimonies of people um, who've done it. So I'm very eager to hear what your experience was. Yeah, I. So I got very interested in that. But uh, mind you, I was I was 18. So my parents. They were kind of reluctant at first, but my father knew Jordan Peterson as well, and he heard him speak about it, and it already made it a bit more realistic. And they were always saying to me that you can do whatever you want at 18. Um, but they did, they were very cautious, let's say. So I got an, I was 19, just at my birthday, and then I got this experience. It was within my country in a center. And so it was a very good setting for it. And the people that were there were mostly a lot older than me and had a lot of issues, I noticed. And so it felt kind of odd to be there. It was kind of the odd one out being like, I don't really have any issues, but I just want to be, I'm very curious and I want to be a better person. And I did approach it with a lot of reverence because I I knew and I learned that you don't do this uh, recreatively, let's say. Um. For a longer testimony, I have a video. I can send it to you later because I think this, uh, I don't want to denigrate an experience like this. Uh-huh. Um, but my parents, they actually drove me there. They really wanted wanted things to go well. And they were really praying for me at the time as well. My mother was hoping it would bring me to to Christ. And... To not go into the practicalities of the of the experience, I'll describe a bit the feelings I felt going through it. Mm-hmm. To me, it was absolutely blissful at times. I felt a deep sense of, of love and understanding. I definitely felt a contact with, with higher intelligences, which was very hard to make sense of, uh, thinking a bit more materialistically when I was younger. And I, I realized that this, this life is but a fraction of the whole. And I cannot convince people of this when I say that to people as well. I was like, I don't fear death anymore. I don't fear what, what comes after. Um, but it was extremely, it was extremely beautiful mostly. But there is definitely dangers to these things. And that's where... When I, when I started to come down from this experience, I got a lot of anxiety because you're kind of floating between worlds, so to speak. It's like you feel connected to another dimension, almost another realm, but you're also back mm-hmm. in, in space time. And that was very anxiety provoking. And I felt, I felt quite unsafe going back down. And, um, I also knew from that moment that I would never do it again. 
because it was so it was really like staring death into the eye for a sec um but it was after such a blissful experience that looking back on it i think it was worth worth that anxiety um yeah do you have any more specific questions pertaining to that experience no but something did pop into my head while you were talking yeah please say um Before I was a Christian, I became a Christian at the age of 32. And yeah. before I was, somebody invited me. There was some musician. I lived in a very, very small town, so there wasn't a lot of entertainment going on. But a music group had come to this church to play music on, mm -hmm. a, on a weekend night. Yeah. And uh, somebody invited me to hear the music. And I thought, well, I like music. I was very locked up and resistant to the whole experience because I didn't want yeah. Christian stuff coming at me. Yes, very relatable. And and, and the, one of the people got up and gave this testimony about how their turning point was when they were climbing, they were kind of like climbing up the mountain of life, you know, facing mm -hmm. all these obstacles and difficulties. Yeah. And then Christ came along and helped them up the mountain. Yeah. And in my head, I'm thinking, I don't need anybody to up <laughs> any mountain. <laughs> yeah. Just stay away from me. Yeah. And but then they sang this song and um and the song made me really mad at the time. But the song is um Let's see. When I'm low and weary, I cry, "Lord, lift me up." Mm. I want to go further with thee. So he draws me aside to be tested and tried um, in the valley. He restoreth my soul. But, but the, uh, the chorus is one of the lines in the chorus is, but he knew I can't live on the mountain. You know, he takes me up to the mountain. Yeah. So you have this mountaintop experience. And then he says, but he knows I can't live on the mountain. So mm -hmm. he picked out a valley for me. Wow. And after I became a Christian, probably probably a year after that, I became a Christian. Mm -hmm. And that thought has remained with me. And I've meditated on it so many times because I used to think, because I've gone through a lot of valleys in my life. Mm -hmm. I mean, this kind of a valley, like yeah. fall off I the edge you. of the earth. I hear you. Um, so I used to think that that line meant he picked out a valley for me meaning that the struggles in my life are really a gift from the mm. Lord. And he's picked yeah. out those particular valleys because they have value in my training and my growth for what's coming next. Yeah. But recently I've been thinking, you know, I live in California and we live in an area called the Valley. Mm. And uh, it's called the Valley because there are mountains on the West that, kind of keep the sea breeze from blowing over here too much and then we have mountains on the east and so we're in this valley and i live in the city but if you go out in the countryside in the valley that's where all the crops grow you know california's the, yeah. um fruit and vegetable growing capital of the world mm -hmm. but valley is also where you see the sheep on the on the pasture you know yes, yes. so the valley can also be this kind of protected place of mm -hmm. 
beauty and love. And I think those two things kind of fit together somehow, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's when we're in the valley that the shepherd is closest to us. He's with us, mm. he's holding on. I mean, he's always there, but we don't usually notice it unless we're in the valley. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's extremely poetic. I love the image. I have the image of my head of the valley. Um, yeah. And what is the name of that song? Um, <clears throat> I'll try to find a recording of yes, it, put it in do. the description section. I mean, right now I have some my brain is so full this weekend <laughs> that things are there's not much room in there so no but i'll try imagine. to i'll try to put it in that description section mm, sounds good it's a beautiful description what also came to mind i think recently you had a well not recently i've been watching all your videos in different orders just the ones that popped out to me and i think uh -huh. it was you that had the description of um an, an axis where you were mm -hmm. speaking about christ that yeah. he, he was an axis and you had the what do you call this the the asymptote could be i think it was something like christ is the axis and you can go up and down and get closer to him but you can't be yeah, him. yeah well so so um i am not a mathematician and i oh yes i, I, I got this now. i got this idea from uh, chris wilson who had been on paul's channel sh yep. shortly before i was and um in calculus, calculus is, is a way of um, helping you solve very difficult problems, like yeah. what is the volume of an irregular shaped lake? Mm -hmm. So in order to do that, you have to kind of take slices of the problem, infinite yeah. number of slices, and then put them back together again. But the, the way it works is... So you have this infinite number of slices that can always get you closer and closer and closer and closer to the solution, but you're never going to get 100% yes, exactly. close to the solution, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's it's what funny. we call an asymptote. Okay. That, that movement up closer in and closer up is an asymptote. It's funny how I pictured it like this. Oh. <laughs> it's completely different. I was like, I got it down. <laughs> I figured it out. But it worked in my mind at least. Yeah. Like you can get closer, but you'll never quite be there. Well, if yeah. we could, we'd stop. Right. Yes, because Jordan exactly. Peterson always says that the only thing that keeps you moving forward is that you're not there yet. You're yes. following this thing, but you you never get there. So that keeps you moving. And of course we go and then we fall and then we move and then we fall. But And the, <clears throat> the vision is always moving just outside of our ability to get there mm. and that's what causes us to keep building skills because if you could get there you'd be done you wouldn't have to learn anything wouldn't more. be great yeah no i feel that that really resonates thank you thank you for explaining that um i guess we could get back to yes get back to your life yeah absolutely so i had the experience and i'm just going to repeat i have the video about it like i'm really not explaining it very thoroughly and it's well, we'll put it in the time. description section so other people can share yeah, that. Yeah, that sounds good. Because I don't want to, uh, again, I don't want to denigrate that. And I think there's a lot more to be said about it, but I know that we have an hour and a half. So um, there's that. Anyway, I had this experience and I came back from it and I was with my parents in the car and I was telling them about it. And my father being very um, biblical in his thinking started to draw all these connections with like, oh, this is this and this is that. Uh, wow, it might be, might be quite similar. Uh -huh. Yeah, it was quite beautiful. 
Um, and then he actually, so I told you he was a theologian. He got promoted on a, I don't know how you say it in English. We say evangel, ev um, evangelical, the gospel. Maybe it's a gospel, gospel of Philip. I think that might be it. Mm -hmm. We use, so you have evangelical and we have a noun that's called evangelie in Dutch. And I'm not sure. Maybe it's gospel. Well, what, what is the whole phrase that you're trying to say? Well, I'm trying to use the noun. So like, I think that you have the gospel of Luke and the gospel of Mark. So I'm using the word, using the word gospel, basically. I yes. Think. Yeah. Because <clears throat> I mean, it, it's the evangelion <clears throat> in, mm. in the Greek, right? But that's, yes. We translate that gospel, but then when we talk about the church, we talk about the evangelical church. Yes, exactly. Church. Okay. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. So there is a, a gospel of Philip. It's not in the Bible, but my father, he, I think his PhD was, was around that. And he led me through that, showing the, the mystique of this text. And I went through it word by word with him. I just had to cry at every page because it resonated so deeply. And I had no idea how much truth was hidden in these words. And this wasn't even the Bible, um, but it was a very, a very profound text. And he showed me the connections. And it was that gospel that opened up uh, my connection back to Christ. Hmm. But one of the dangers of having an experience like this is, Bajot calls it sometimes, that you start to play uh, comparative religion. It's like, oh, mm -hmm. here's some truth, and here's some truth, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm better than them. You know, <laughs> it's like it's very dangerous. Uh, so I came out of it, and luckily I had my father and my brother who were a tad bit wiser than I am, um, making me aware of the works of Verveke uh, and and Peters, and I think Pajot already at the time, and I didn't yet understand that it is not as easy as not choosing a religion and just plucking the fruits of all of them. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I'm not sure if I'm in the position to choose a religion. That's also what I learned because my father always told me like, I don't really care what you believe, but you're a Christian in the way you were raised, where you come from. Um, I don't think you can really escape that. <laughs> so that was quite, a, it was quite a realization, but it took for me, I have a very hard mind. That's why I also wanted this experience because it takes a lot to convince me of things um, that is less so now. I feel much more open and curious than I did before. Mm -hmm. But I was led into uh, the Meaning Crisis series by Favicki. Mm -hmm. um, and his work, funnily enough, given that he's not a Christian, I think that's, that's mostly what brought me to Christ, which is quite, quite interesting. And it, it was because of the, the frameworks he used. It was quite interesting. I'd never heard that before, where he had the four Ps, propositional, participatory, procedural, and perspectival. And I started to realize that it, it's not really about the propositions as much as it is about the behavior. And then I got into contact with orthodox thinking, where it's like, you, if you're a Christian, you behave like Christ. It's not about believing whether this or that happened. And... Then I started reading the New Testament with my father every week. We went through it every week, a chapter. And I started realizing that the person in that story, uh, maybe more than that, the symbol, but also really the person that is the, the highest good 
that's the highest way I could ever live. Um, that was already enough for me to say, okay, I get it. If I if I take this story, I apply it to my life, then that's the highest thing I can do. Um, that was mostly where my conviction came from, um, seeing it through another lens like this. And it has been the biggest gift of my life. And it has allowed me to to give some of the love back to my parents that I never gave them when I was younger, to my siblings, to... I have a lot of family members that always send me cards for my birthday and all these things. And, you know, when you're a teenager, you don't really like your your aunts and your <laughs> uncles, at least. <laughs> Maybe I'm a bit different. I didn't really. And I'm trying to give some of that love back. And uh, it's... Uh, ever since, it's been the most beautiful. So right now, I'm 21 years old. It's been about two years since I've really changed. It was really after that experience as well, the the ayahuasca. Um, and it's been such a, a beautiful journey. Like I said, I lost um, a fear of death and it has really allowed me to live and to take leaps that I would have never taken before. Uh, it also brought me to well, this way of living brought me to my current partner, which she is extremely dear to me. I, um, so as I said, she's my yoga instructor. I met her in yoga a year and a half back about. And her classes, I, when I first did one of her classes, I thought she, she had done like ayahuasca ceremonies, you know? <laughs> like I was like, I feel such a spiritual connection. Like, how is this possible? And she's like, no, that's just yoga. I'm like, oh okay, you don't need the, the substance necessarily. And she also showed me the, the value in having a grounded tradition instead of just a spiritual experience. Like it's not enough to have the experience. And I knew very, very quickly with her that, that she was the person for me. Um, and it was Peterson actually, to go back a little bit, that convinced me that I was ready already to, to find someone for life. So when I entered university at 19 years old, it was also for me a moment where I was like, okay, I'm ready to find my wife now. <laughs> wow. uh, so I just went looking and I just had this, this idea like, okay, every day I'm going to try to meet, meet someone and just introduce myself to see if there's anyone out there for me. And when I met my partner, um, I had a deep connection with her initially, but I did not think she would take me seriously at all. So it was actually a very deep bond, but not romantically, at least not yet. And I spoke to her after class every time and I asked her some fundamental questions like, what do you think happens after death? Stuff like this. <laughs> <laughs> just casual stuff and she's like who are you she's like <laughs> she was like how many how much time uh, do you have uh, but she really she grounds me so much um and after I had my my ayahuasca experience I really started like drifting spiritually where I did so much meditation and I was so away from the world almost like I had not a lot of desires if you know what I mean like not a lot of earthly desires I just wanted to to be with God, but I didn't, it was the vertical dimension, but not the horizontal, if you know what I'm mm -hmm. speaking about. Yeah. Yeah. 
and she she grounds me like like nothing else she brought me back to that to that side of living and um i get so much from her yoga practice as well it's um that's been extremely profound because as i said i grew up as a protestant and it doesn't have this participatory knowledge and with Viveki's framework i could see the power in in having such a practice where it's a um, i think he would maybe describe it as a transjective um practice i don't know that's how he describes his tai chi i don't know if he would say that yoga is one as well but i definitely found something something very beautiful there um so yeah that's a bit about about yeah, that. I, I was just going to say um when you say the participatory practice you don't mean are you are you referring to participating with other people or are you referring to participating in a physical practice like tai chi or yoga i guess participatory in the sense that well with yoga you it is definitely a physical practice but it's also quite spiritual um through the movements you feel extremely present and i guess in that sense it's participatory like you're partaking in but maybe that's that's not the right word for it now that you say it like this but well, at no, least I was, it's i was just trying to i wasn't making any judgment i was just trying no, to no. clarify because yeah, yeah when you first said there's nothing participatory in in protestantism before you said the thing about yoga you said that thing first and ah so yes in my head mean. is well in my church um participation is super important because oh, yeah. they really focus on getting everybody into a small group where you build community and you serve one another and then as a group you serve the community and Mm -hmm. they really work on that angle of participation but then yeah. i wasn't sure if you meant that or if you meant no. this other thing and i should correct myself i'm not saying that the protestant church doesn't have participation it's that i with my <laughs> ignorance and childhood was not participating oh i see <laughs> do you see well, what and I, mean? I did want to ask you you know being young you still yes. have memory of what your teenage years were like oh yeah right yes. so do you think you can still remember what it was as a teenager that caused you to not like your relatives or to not want to participate in the church. I mean, what was going on in there? Well, I think it has something to do also with our day and age and our <laughs> pop culture, excuse me, our pop culture, mm -hmm. which is, it's very self-centered. It's extremely, at least the way I got it when I was watching TVs and movies and that's how I was raised basically. Mm -hmm. um, it's not cool to go to church um, uh -huh. let's say it like that and oh they all and they always make the pastor the bad guy he's it's always incredible, like huh? demon or something it's Karen I gotta tell you my father was always complaining about how they portrayed Christians um, and I didn't know and now that I identify as a Christian myself I get triggered all the time <laughs> oh, and then it's always the guy in a suit is the bad guy oh yeah always. oh yeah Always. Yeah, I mean, it's, always. It's, it's really funny. Yeah, it is extremely so, so. It's so predictable, though. They think they're being edgy and avant-garde, but it's totally predictable. Oh, it's extremely predictable. <laughs> but to get back to it, I was extremely self-centered as a 
as a teenager, as a child, life was all about me. And that was a big mistake. Um, and I'm extremely grateful I got out of it. But And I didn't have the gratitude that I, that I have now. I think sometimes it's a bit hard to explain why I was the way I was. I'm not very happy with the way I thought about life. But I just wanted to, I wanted to fit in and I wanted to be cool. And I guess faith didn't fit in that picture, nor was like mm -hmm. working hard, cool, or was actually being ambitious about anything. It just wasn't there. And it was partially also the friends I surrounded myself with. Um, they didn't motivate me. I didn't motivate them. It's um, I, I want to encourage you about one thing, and that is that I didn't nothing even really started occurring to me about the way the world worked until I was 28, 30 years old, something like that. Because mm. when I was your age, yeah, I mean, I was doing life. I was, I was getting along. Okay. I, I was on my own. I had to pay my way. I had to go to college and all yeah. that. I'm studying all those things, but I don't remember having any worldview formed at all. I just remember being very kind of vague, amorphous, yeah for years and nothing kind of came into being for me mm -hmm. until and and i was married young and i had a baby at the age of 22 so i'm being oh, well. a mother and i've got all this stuff going on but there's no yeah. me there mm. and that that me didn't start to form until i started thinking about i think i first started reading um archaeology books and then oh, yeah. economics and then history so I, I ran into Heinrich Schliemann really early on and mm -hmm. I read that book about Troy. And then that st started me thinking, well, wait a minute, maybe these old things, maybe there's something true in these old things. Oh yeah. You know, that yeah. was like a real revelation. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, yes. you're 21 and you're well on the way to, to having a life. And I, I wanted to say something earlier. You said something about reality and, um, or the, the spirit of the age that we're in. Yes. Yes. That was one of the common threads that I got from the guys at the conference this weekend is that they yeah. felt that their generation didn't have a connection to reality because the world just sort of seems like there's nothing real there. And so they had such a hunger to find something that they could yes. touch, push up against. Right. Yes. I really feel, I mean, it's postmodern, right? It's there's, there's no truth. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an extremely, dangerous way of thinking and I actually see it reflected in some of the the friends I have now that I speak to in the gym sometimes I had this whole discussion with a friend of mine about morality there's not a lot of things I can get uh you can wind me up about I'm very agreeable so I don't like conflict at all <laughs> but he was like yeah it's all relative and I was like mm. <laughs> um but it's quite deeply ingrained uh especially in the pop culture, like I said, the TV shows, the movies you're watching, like, what is it all about? It's a, as a man, it's, you want to sleep with as many women as possible. You want to have money. You want to have all the material. You want to be rich. And then every person that gets there is extremely unsatisfied and depressed because um, it's not, it's not real. There's, there's no real love there. There is no beauty in that. And so it really resonates what you said about the people you met at the conference. You want to have something real in your life. And I think once you find that, it's uh, it's the best thing. And then 
it only encourages you to find more and more of that. Certainly did so with me. Well, one of the other questions I want to ask you about that is you were talking about, you said you decided you wanted to find a wife. Oh, yeah. I heard a lot of that this weekend from the guys. <laughs> but but there's some confusion about how to go about that. So you said ah. you went out and, okay. and would talk to a, a, another girl each day. But yes. did you just plunge right in with all of them with these deep questions? Or how did you approach no. meeting people? Well, I'm in university and I was going to a gym already. And I was taking public transportation every day, which somehow... Once, once you just introduce yourself to someone spontaneously one time or two times, it gets so much easier. And it's also well, so not that. Just be practical. Go through the, the introduction with me. How do you introduce yourself? What well, did you say? Let's say it like this. It's not always like, hello, my name is Lucas. <laughs> Sometimes it's like you're at the gym and you're using a machine or someone else needs to use it. Or you ask like, oh, what's this, what's this exercise? You go up to someone like, hey, how do you, how does that work? Or can you help me with this? And he was like, oh, by the way, this is my name. And I I think it was also very important that when I approached people, it wasn't with the intention, like, I really want to date you or something. It was just yeah. to meet them. You know, <laughs> it's that, like, I do think I'm, that scares people off. Oh, the absolutely. line that really scares them off is, I think God told me that you're supposed to be my wife. There we go. <laughs> yeah, don't be scared. No, absolutely. So it was actually very, like, it was very... Uh, low stakes I just wanted to say hi and a lot of the people that I met then I still I still see at the gym and they're they're lovely people and with most of them I just didn't feel any connection especially because in my age group I mean no one is really looking for a long-term relationship at least not explicitly sometimes they're like yeah we'll see where it goes and like "Mm." I wanted to find someone that was actually ready to settle and my incredible partner was uh able and willing and it's she's also a bit older she's 26 so she was more at an age where she was ready for that um but yeah that's a bit how i went about it mostly it was just it wasn't an actual encounter like hello this is my name it was more um like i said the, the little interactions or like you need something or so and i would really encourage the guys listening really talk to people get out there and, and like as i said after you've done it one or two times, it's not that big of a deal after. And this person is probably waiting for you somewhere. Um, and the more people you speak to, the higher the chances that you'll find that person. So stay strong. Yeah. My husband is always telling me that he feels so sorry for a young man because his experience and all the other young men he knew at the time, their experience was, all you ever get are no's. Mm. So he said a lot of guys just end up getting tired of all the no's. And so they oh, yeah. watching a video with their buddies and a beer on Friday night. Yeah. And, uh, but, but there's also this other thing where the really good salespeople, and I mean, I know you're not supposed to be a salesperson, but I mean, there is this <laughs> idea that, that a sales guy gets 250 no's for every yes. Yes. But, but every no that you get gets you closer to the yes. So you, can, beautiful. you can be thankful for the no's. Right? Yeah. But and it's especially also the... if you're looking for somebody that God has chosen for, or that, that if you're looking for someone in God's world, mm-hmm. then 
then those no's are a blessing because those are the ones that God has is protecting you from because yes. not that there's anything wrong with that person, but maybe the two of you together wouldn't yeah. be a good fit, right? Definitely. Definitely. I really feel that. Um, and I would also say that just to add a bit on top of the approaching people, it's also really about where you are. Like if you are in a place where there's mostly men, um, it's not going to go well. So for example, me being in university, especially nowadays, it's incredible. The ratio it's, it's quite, I don't know <laughs> what that is about, but there's a lot more women in, in uh, university, especially here. Um, I don't know what caused that. Um, but like sports classes and stuff like this, it already makes it makes it so much easier. And rejection is really, especially if you're a man, it's a part of life. Um, so as Karen, as you said, you're going to get a lot of no's for one yes, but those no's get you closer. So it's extremely encouraging. And it's what you said before, right? It's uh, It's that motivation where you said you will never really have it, but you'll always keep moving toward it. Um, and there's real beauty in the search. And it's like that's, I like this with everything. Um, don't give up. And when you look back on it, the journey was actually the beautiful part. Destination is amazing, but the journey was actually so beautiful. Yeah, well, and, and FYI, marriage is that way too. You can oh, yeah. get closer, but you're never going to get there. So. Exactly. Even that is not a destination at all. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, the process of marriage. We've been married now 30 years and it's mostly been an upward trajectory. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot of valleys, but squiggly but, lines. Um, but but we still have so much to learn about each other and so much farther to get in, in learning to love each other. Well, and you know, I mean, that's what keeps you moving. So. Yeah. I think it's one thing Peterson said he was, he did a short series about, I think marriage. Um, and he said that there's more variation and depth in one person than there is in, in so many others because mm -hmm. this, and for Vicky has the same when sometimes he speaks about his partner. I'm not sure what her name is. It escapes me right now but he speaks about how he keeps falling deeper and deeper in love with her. Mm -hmm. And it's really like that. Um, so people that tell me that, that marriage is a prison or stuff like this, I'm like, you're living in the prison. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I don't know. I don't know what you guys are. Well, I think having. it's exactly the same principle as <clears throat> like the new atheist guys that find the Bible shallow or. Um, Shout out Sam Harris. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You could spend your whole life on one verse and never get to the bottom of it. Much less spend your life yes. on the whole Bible and never get to the bottom of it, right? Incredible. And that's the way people are too. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. That's really and, and that really it, it helps to remember that when you are with people that are, you know, sometimes you might be in a in a group of people where you're sort of you're sort of inside this boundary that you kind of have to be there with these people, whether mm -hmm. it's at your work or wherever it might be. But if you if you can be open to really trying to reflect on who they are as a person, yeah. you can find depths in people that you, you start out not liking them at all, but over time you can start to see all these sparkles, right? Yes. And, uh, Every person has that. Yeah, I really believe that. And something uh, 
that I'm thinking about right now is you spoke about your your art in the sense that you need constriction for creativity. Mm-hmm. And so you can't just have this this explosion of of people and and expect to to find the beauty there. It's really when you when you narrow it down and you get to know persons individually that that this beauty starts to starts to arise. Also when you when you put a boundary around it, you make a commitment to people. Yes. So if you have a small group from church and you're you're committed to each other, you don't know each other at all, but you're going to commit to this group of people without knowing whether you like them or not, right? Yeah. So now you have this boundary and then inside that boundary things can grow. Yeah, that's incredibly said. It's really true. Um I feel that sometimes when I had when I was still looking for for my person, I had even a lot of encounters with strangers and it was astounding to me how much depth there was in these people. Like you meet them for five seconds and already th- those moments were were definitely the most the most meaningful and in that period. So I definitely second that. Well, so how did you get connect? Um, now, what led you to study Egyptology? That's such uh, a yeah. random. <laughs> well, not random. I mean, I get it because I had this passion for archaeology when I was young. Yeah. I mean. So when I finished high school, we have three levels in the Netherlands of, of high school. And I was very mediocre, but it was at the highest level, which gave me access to university. Um, and so I didn't want to waste that degree not doing university. So I really wanted to at least try that. And I looked at the courses and they all looked extremely boring to me. Um, and that's largely due to my own ignorance because I couldn't see the probably the, the beauty in a lot of those courses. Um, and also I had an economics and society um, path in my high school, which constricted constricted me in what I could choose. So, for example, I was interested in biology, neuroscience, stuff like this, but I wasn't allowed to do that because I didn't have the the subject matter. Um, but of all the courses that were available to me in university, this one was the only one that really spoke to me. Um, and I spoke earlier about Joe Rogan and Graham Hancock. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with Graham. Yes. Um, he he really sparked that that interest inside of me as well, and he's a bit more of a materialist now. Not I'm seeing that now, but he was definitely the gateway for me into into this curiosity to to the ancients, and and I guess that that really got me into Egyptology. And I initially went in for like the materialist perspective, where it was like I want to prove. Um, that these things are older than than the than my professors say they are, but now I'm much more interested in the in the religious and the metaphysical side, and the the myths surrounding Egypt. Also, reading Carl Jung, and um, I always hear Peterson speak about Horus and Seth. Mm-hmm. And funnily enough, right now for my uh, I'm learning hieroglyphs. We're doing the Horus and Seth text, so that's quite uh, quite something to read. So that's, I guess, a bit how I got interested. Well, so how does a person use a degree in Egyptology when when you graduate? Well, you could go into research if you want, if you're very motivated. And there's not a lot of people studying this, surprisingly or maybe unsurprisingly. 
So I'm in class sometimes with five people. It's very normal. Um, so you have a very close connection with the professors. And if you want to, they really encourage you, like, go for it. And it's such a young science that there's so much left to research. Um, so there's definitely a lot of possibilities there. But secondly, I think in this country, getting a degree in university already goes quite a long way with a lot of different um, employers where it's already a basic skill set. There's, there's a lot of people that end up working in places in this country that has nothing to do with their university degree, but just having that degree can get you many places. So looking at the, the people that already graduated from this course, they work everywhere and nowhere. It's, uh, it's very diverse when you're, where they end up. Um, but I, I didn't really think long-term with this, to be very honest, if I wanted to make money, I would have probably, uh, studied business or something like this, but I've just been following my curiosity and it's been, uh, it's been very interesting thus far. Well, I, I mentioned to you in our email exchanges that one of the books that kind of turned me on to long before I was a Christian turned me on to thinking about deeper things were the books by um, Emmanuel Velikovsky. Yeah. He has one book worlds in collision and another book ages in chaos. Mm -hmm. I'm not familiar and, with them. Well, okay. The, the basic premise that he was researching, he mm -hmm. took a look at all the, the, the ancient writings from all the different cultures. And he said, they all talk about this war in the heavens. Mm. And he started thinking, what's going on there? Mm. And not only did they all talk about this war in the heavens, but they all talk about this worldwide flood. Yes, certainly. And he started thinking, maybe there's a connection between the war and the heaven. Now, he was not a, a Christian, mm. but he was he, he was a scholar, and so he knew the Bible. Mm -hmm. And he started thinking, maybe there's a connection. And maybe some of these things in the Bible and in the story of the Exodus, maybe they're true. Mm -hmm. And... Um, in the book of Genesis. So maybe this Bible, this this um, flood was somehow precipitated by a war in the heavens mm. by some planetary object coming too close to Earth. Yep. And the gravity of that causing a flood. Now, uh, okay. now I don't have much patience for this idea that there has to be some massive intervention to create God's miracles, you know? Yep. But yeah, back I mean, in those days, it was all very intellectually interesting. Yeah. In order to make his theory work, though, he has to go into the the uh, timeline of Egypt mm. because the Egyptian history does not include the Jewish people yeah. as slaves, right? Mm -hmm. So he did a readjustment of the his of the chronological historical timeline of Egypt and and uh, and the rest of history and it kind of adjusts down one um one dynasty okay and all of a sudden things fit into place now i i have since read that there's a lot of scholarly dispute with him but he was the first one that talked about you know before velikovsky and even after velikovsky almost yeah. all of the um geologists were uniformitarians meaning they thought that that the earth had just always gone on the way it had gone on and that um 
that everything that had happened on the earth was a matter of gradualism just over yeah. the eons. Mm -hmm. But you notice now that a lot of these guys are talking about cataclysms. Yes. We'll talk about now that the, the comet that caused the destruction of the, the dinosaurs. Nobody talked about that before Velikovsky. So okay. Velikovsky came along. He got reamed. The scientific establishment just destroyed him. They humiliated mm -hmm. him. They cut him out of all the scientific funding, everything. And he's still very controversial. And there's still a lot of people that said he was a big wacko. But his books are fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Completely we have compelling. specific ones to recommend. Yeah, I would say Worlds in Collision is the one Worlds that talks collision. about this war in the heavens and ages in chaos. And I can't remember the name of the one where he redoes the Egyptian timeline, but I'll look it up. Okay. It's very interesting, especially the flood stories. Like I was learning about the, the different floods. The Mesopotamian one is is near identical to the, to Noah. Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny because, so you have Graham Hancock and he looks at those stories and he's like, Look, it's the same thing, guys. It happened here, here, and here. And South America has it. And then you have Carl Jung, and he looks at it more psychologically. He's like, mm -hmm. this is, like Peterson says, this is chaos, you know? Uh, how do you prepare for the chaos? And so I find it very interesting to see how different people look at it. But I guess sometimes you have a, a bottom-up as well as a top-down yeah. event sure. coinciding. So maybe they're both, they're all right in a sense. Um, but I love picking up on these universal aspects to all these different myths. And I think that, that you have the same um, from what I learned about, about you. Yeah. I mean, that, that's sort of my thing. I, I started with the idea that all truth is truth. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a truth yeah. and all these other places where you find truth line up with that truth. And yes. the place that I got that idea really was, Years ago, I was a missionary in Japan with my first husband. And when we first mm -hmm. got there, <clears throat> the uh, mission compound didn't have any extra housing, but they did have a house where some other missionaries had gone back to the United States for six months. Mm -hmm. So we lived in their house and they had this beautiful library of Christian books and yep. research. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the weird things about even good Christian books never end up in a library anywhere. Mm -hmm. So so if you don't read it when it comes out and if it goes out of print, you'll never see it. Mm. They had books there that were like 100 years old. Of oh, wow. Thinkers. And, and one of the thinkers was a guy who had taken a look at the Chinese characters in the Chinese language. Yeah. And analyze them according to their meaning and in it's almost as though buried in the chinese characters is the gospel oh, wow yeah that's interesting and, yeah yeah absolutely and um taylor hudson actually found some of that when he was a missionary in china in the late 1800s because he used to use the Chinese character for righteousness to explain the gospel to the people there. Because mm -hmm. the Chinese character, Chinese characters are built up in four quad. Well, they can either be two quadrants, one on top of the other, or they can yeah. be two quadrants, I mean, not quadrants, but two sections side by side, mm -hmm. or they can be four quadrants, depending on how much information has to get packed into the character. So the, the Chinese character for righteousness um 
the top half is the character for lamb. Mm -hmm. The bottom half is the character for me. Okay. So it's lamb over me. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. So anyway, this guy that wrote the book about various other Chinese characters that way, as I'm reflecting on it, at the time I was thinking, you know, at the Tower of Babel, Mm -hmm. the languages were divided. But before the Tower of Babel, the people were in, obviously they were in rebellion, but still they had remembrances and memories and patterns of God's truth that had been given to them. Mm-hmm. So then that truth was carried with each language as it went out. Yes. So it makes okay. perfect sense that little bits of truth would be in. They maybe carried all the truth with them, but over time it got twisted a little bit, corrupted yeah. a little bit. Some of it got lost, but there's a, there may be some central truths in there. So you can say, yes, if I find some truth in Buddhism, that doesn't scare me at all. Because uh, okay. I see what you're saying. That's still a gift from God. Yeah. And so, but but that's not the same thing as saying that all roads lead to God because no, yeah, right? It's and, two different you, things. Yeah, absolutely. And you also spoke with Wolfgang Smith. I think he really uh showed very clearly how well he spoke about because there's perennialism, which is mm-hmm. that all religions are the same and they lead mm-hmm. to the same thing. And he also made clear distinctions in that, which I found very, very helpful. Uh, but going back a little bit with your saying about universalism, I I heard you speak about the Bible um, very briefly saying that you think it's the, the highest, the highest truth. And I was very interested in the way you said that. I, I was, I was wondering if you could expand on that. Um, well, I mean, to me, these, everything just lines up, right? Yeah. Jesus is the word. The word is, is the Bible. Yes. Um, Jesus says, <clears throat> I am the way, the truth and the life. Mm-hmm. So the truth, I am the truth. Yes. So the truth and the word in the Bible, <clears throat> they've all got to line up somehow if what mm. Jesus is saying is correct. Okay. Yeah. And then the word truth in Greek also means reality. Mm. So Jesus is also reality. Yeah. And he is also the, the one who holds all things together. We see mm. that in Colossians. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole thing just kind of lines up on this axis. I hear you. Yeah, yeah, the axis yeah. back again. I I recently listened to Peugeot talk about uh, Jesus, and he showed some imagery, symbolic imagery, showing how he contains all of totality. So he'll speak about the mercy and the judgment, and it's it's incredible the way he he also uses Egyptian imagery, by the way, where he has like the mm-hmm. static and the dynamic. And mm-hmm. I know you're familiar with Persic's work, where he also speaks in those terms, and he. I think Peugeot brilliantly lays out how all is contained in this this symbol, the the Christ. It's a it's totality, really. So I I understand what you're saying now. Thank you. Well, one of the other things Velikovsky mentioned was that one of the Egyptian rulers was named Akhenaten, mm-hmm. and that he was the one who tried to bring his society into believing in the one God. Monotheism, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's true. So, we had the, yeah. yeah, you know a lot more about that than I do. I just remember mm-hmm. that little bit. Have you studied that yet? Yeah, it's a little bit. He's quite famous because, um, so what he did was he broke with tradition and he started his own capital, completely 
because normally you have all these traditions you're supposed to have your coronation here and all these things and he started his own his own city his own capital named Amarna and it only existed for 16 years and that's why it's perfectly preserved because there's no building on top of it usually um, that already me- always messes up the archaeology because it oftentimes there's also modern cities built on top of this uh, but he did away with with all traditions he would carve out the the gods in the temples and all these things and he would only have room for one which was Aten so his name is Aken Aten which would mean life of Aten and Aten is the god the monotheistic god and he's a he's a sun god um, which they already had one but he just made his own like his own name um, so yeah that's a bit a bit about him it was quite interesting it was I don't know what sparked it even there's never really been a good explanation for that as far as I know what made him so persistent in that? Well, I wonder if he had some of the same intuition or sense or experience that Moses had when, I mean, not Moses, Abraham had when he was Mm. called out of Ur. Yeah, possibly. Because he was coming out of a a polytheistic society. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, the other thing that, that, um, religious scholars often say is that we all went through evolution and then we started out with these multiple gods and then eventually we evolved to one god yes but i don't think it worked that way at all i know started out with one god and then we screwed it all up and then i was gonna say all have like today we have yes gods right food yes and sex and yes absolutely can i say something on that Oh, I wish, you'd, so, I wish so, you'd talk more so I'd quit talking. <laughs> no, but Karen, I feel like when I talk, I'm like, I, I'm talking too much, you know. <laughs> so, no, no, no. Okay, so I have two classes right now for hieroglyphs. One is the oldest version. One is the newer version. And the interesting thing is I thought that Egypt was completely polytheistic all the time. But there's a very clear message that it's that there's one source. And these other gods, they're more like the angels as we understand them i guess i mean the egyptians are far from us but i'm very it's very clear that um at least in the earlier periods there was such a clear conception of of one god being higher than than the other ones it's it's very clear and i asked my teacher this as well and he was like yeah yeah and it's a bit the same i guess in uh in hinduism where sometimes we interpret it as completely polytheistic but there's such a clear talk of the i'm very ignorant about hinduism but I know I know enough to tell that there's there's like a one, I think it's Atman, something like this. Um, so it's much more complex than that. And right now we're living certainly in polytheistic times. I mean, as you said, we have a lot of uh, gods we are serving. Um, so yeah, bit of that. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> so. Um... Anything you want to talk about, just go for it. This is your day. It's my day. Yeah. It's incredible. Because um, I know we have episode two and episode three coming up where we're going to zone in on some more specific things. But if you want yes. to kind of lay out some of the things you've been thinking about. Well, yeah, it's funny because I've been I've been reading a lot of Wolfgang like ever since uh, that I've been trying to read all of his, most all of his books. But that that's, I think, something uh, we'll discuss for the third one. Um I, I actually, I don't know a lot about you, Karen. Because um, <laughs> like, like for me, um, I'm also here to to get to know you, I guess. 
Um, and you spoke about finding Christ later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Are you, are you willing to speak uh, to speak more about how What's that came what, to what, me? What would I, be your specific question? Well, you had the the song that that mm-hmm. changed something within you. Was it a quick process after that that you that you felt? I don't know that that song changed anything in me, but I think it made me aware that there was a core of rebellion inside of me because yes. I really went away angry. So mm. I don't even know I, that I reflected much on that, but but I remember being angry. Mm. And some some years before, um, when my my daughter was uh, like four or five years old, so it would have been. Let's see. Maybe maybe she was six years old. There was a little church in the town near us that kept inviting all the children to come to church on Wednesday night and learn Bible yeah. verses. Mm-hmm. They had a little group called the Whirly Birds, and they had these little beanies with a <laughs> propeller on the top that they would get. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And so you come to church as a Whirly Bird. You you become a Whirly Bird, and you you learn verses and. Everybody wanted to go because the bus would stop on the way home at the ice cream shop and buy everybody an ice cream cone. Mm-hmm. And she really wanted to go. So I let her go. They would come pick her up and go. But it really made me angry because mm. we didn't eat sugar in our household. And I thought that they were corrupting her. And yeah. And one time they came to the door and they said, you know, because she only went on Wednesday nights. We didn't go to church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they said, we're having a special thing on Sunday where the children get to come and say their Bible verses. And and then for every Bible verse they say, they get a little key and they can go to the treasure mm-hmm. chest and try to open the treasure chest. And yep. then there'll be candy and gifts in there. And then I said, get out of here. I mean, I was so rude to them. <laughs> get out of my house. You know? You're yep. just trying to bribe my daughter and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, she would bring these Bible verses home and I'd have to help her memorize them. Mm-hmm. And the first one she memorized was John 3, 16. Mm-hmm. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh. And uh, so all this is kind of going on in the background. Yeah. And, and then we, we moved from that town out to a farm. And on that farm, there were some neighbors who had been missionaries in Africa. And uh, they were always inviting her to church on Sunday evening to Mm -hmm. go and watch these little puppet shows they did for the children. Mm -hmm. One time she came home talking about the puppet show and there was a devil in the puppet show. And then I got really angry with those people. (laughs) What are you doing talking to my kid about devils? Yeah. So I was really, you know, I was really a resentful person. But at the same time, I had gotten, I told you I gotten interested in economics. Yep. Partly because it was a really uh, tumultuous time in mm. the United States. Um, all during the 1970s, we had... Yep. We had hyperinflation. We had interest rate increases that made it almost impossible to buy and sell houses. Um, We went through oil scarcity, food scarcity. 
there was all this hue and cry that we were going to have a great economic crash. And there, mm-hmm. so I started reading all these books on economics, trying to understand, is this just fear or is there really a crash coming and how do we prepare for it? And that made me get interested in, well, maybe we need different leadership. So I started getting politically involved and that led me to, um, I lived in Iowa, so there were a lot of, um, Iowa's the first caucuses in the United States when they go through the primary process. I was the first state to vote on the yep. primary process. Yep. Yep. So all the presidential candidates come there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I went to a picnic where George H.W. Bush was there and I got to shake mm-hmm. his hand and everything. And I went to this coffee that was that was representing um, Phil Crane, was a guy that I really wanted to mm-hmm. become the president. And so I went to this coffee that was supporting him. And all the people there were um, holding up these flyers against George H.W. Bush because he mm. was a member of something called the Trilateral Commission. They were all wired up about this. I didn't mm. know what the problem was, but okay. I went back to the library and tried to find what I could mm-hmm. because I'm a very curious person. And the library was completely empty of anything about the trilateral commission zero except Mm -hmm. in one newspaper there was one tiny little paragraph that said the members of the trilateral commission and then it listed these um leaders of all these countries Mm -hmm. are having their annual meeting at hilton head island in south carolina on such and such a date i'm like wait a minute there's all these elite leaders of the world and they have an annual meeting mm-hmm. coming together at some location. And there's nothing about it anywhere else. There's no magazine articles or books or essays mm-hmm. or that didn't make sense to me. So then I started looking further afield and trying to find books that weren't mainline, trying to find some information about it, which led me down a long rabbit hole of this huge conspiracy theory. <laughs> and I got so into this conspiracy theory that like you do with conspiracy theory, oh, yeah. I filled my whole house with research and I had Florida ceiling bookshelves covered with documentation. And uh, I was getting more and more anxious about the whole mm. thing. Mm-hmm. And in the process of that, I ran across something called the Aspen Institute for Humanistic Studies, which was mm-hmm. a fairly new organization. And it was also one of these places where all these high elite types would get together and they were putting out pamphlets talking about how they wanted to take over. They didn't use the word take over, but basically they wanted to fill the educational system with the a way of producing good global citizens for the new world order. Oh, that's a familiar time. <laughs> Yeah, but this is 1979. Oh, wow. And uh, I thought I had this daughter who's nine years old at the time. Mm. I thought, I don't want somebody taking over my daughter's mind to make her a good global citizen for the new world order. I was very much a free market thinker at that point. Mm. And uh, so... 
um, I was beside myself mm-hmm. and I just cried out at the hell. I almost shouted at the heavens. I said, look, I've been writing letters to the editor and I've been trying to have meetings with people and inform them about this stuff. And, and here's these people who are going to take over my daughter's mind. Yeah. If there's a God out there, you've got to do something <laughs> because obviously it's bigger than I am. And yeah. that's the first time that I had a humble thought, I think, because somehow I thought I could fix the world. And I fell asleep that night. Mm-hmm. And the next morning I woke up and I was at peace. Wow. And I thought, that's strange. <clears throat> and that weekend I was supposed to go to a, a grassroots organizing conference for political mm-hmm. movement. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it was in another town and I had to stay with a friend there because it was too far for me to drive every night. Mm-hmm. And while I was at the conference, I heard this guy speak. His name was Colonel Sleeper, and he was talking on peace through strength, which mm-hmm. is the idea that um, a nation that is not strong is vulnerable and yep. much more likely to get involved in a war than a nation that is strong. And so I had some questions for him and I went up to talk to him afterwards and he said, look, Karen, let's go have a cup of coffee in the coffee shop. So we went over there Mm -hmm. having this cup of coffee. I don't remember what we talked about, but at some point he must've gotten the impression that I was kind of worked up about things. And he said, you know what you need, Karen, you need to go to a Bible believing church. Mm. I didn't know what he was talking about because I had gone and sat in the back seat of some churches when people were getting married or something, but I didn't know what a Bible believing church meant yeah. or how to find one. And I went back to my friend's house that night and I told her what this guy had said. Now, now mind you, we're both 32 years old at this time, right? Yeah. yeah. And she says to me, Hmm, I think I might've heard of such a thing. She said, my mother is always dragging me to this church where they're giving psychological talks and talking about magazine articles and stuff. But one day my mother said, you know, I ought to find a Bible believing church. Mm. And so her mother had started going to this church and she said, do you want to go tomorrow morning? We could go together. So, okay. So there was this big Bible believing church in Des Moines, Iowa called first federated. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'd never been any place like that in my life. It was big, high ceilings, and it was all light and bright. And most churches I'd been in were kind of dark and, you know, gloomy. Yeah. And usually the churches I went to, I think, were just Christian in name only, kind of yes. social club types, because the people oh, yeah. weren't interacting with each other and everybody looked grumpy and stuff. But mm-hmm. at this church, everybody was happy. They're singing these beautiful transcendent songs and the husband has his wife or arm around the wife and the children are enjoying each other and enjoying life. And it was quite an experience. And so I'm looking around thinking, wow, this is different than I've seen before. And, and on the way out, there's a stack of free books that you can pick up. Mm-hmm. And one of those free books was secular humanism in the light of the Holy scriptures. Mm-hmm. And I thought, huh, Aspen Institute of Humanistic Studies is what I don't <laughs> want. So maybe there's an answer for me here. I picked up that book and took it home and read it. And that was it. That's what I want. 
I want this Holy Scripture thing. I don't know how to find it, but that's what I want. So then I started following the trail. And uh, not too soon after that, there was a tent revival that came to town. And I went to this tent revival. And, you know, the old story, you follow the sawdust trail down to the front. And I knelt and uh, asked to have Christ in my life. And I don't think I really got it at that point. I I, I mean, I don't think I really understood what was happening. Yeah. Then I got into a church and I started going to Bible study and learning more and more. And probably after about six months, I really felt like I was beginning to get transformed, you know. And yeah. So yeah, I hear that. It was wow. kind of a long process. It wasn't instantaneous. No, I hear you. Yeah. I guess the the process being organic makes it could make it longer lasting. I feel that with things that take longer to to evolve and, and to yeah. Yeah, so that's that's very beautiful. Yeah. Thank you well, for sharing that. It, it was crazy because the weird thing is I put away, I got rid of all the documentation and all the conspiracy theory. Um, and about three weeks later, my husband said, you know, something's different. What's happening mm. with you? And so I told him and I said, I want to start going to church. And so he started joining me at church and, and then he had the same experience. And so he became a Christian too. Then our daughter went to summer camp and she became a Christian. Mm. I got rid of all my conspiracy theory. I said, God is bigger (laughs) than all this. I don't have to worry about it. The interesting thing is all that stuff is still happening today. (laughs) Yes. I was going to say about this. uh, It's a part of the mission about myself is that I fell into a bit of that hole as well uh say like 2020 mm-hmm. and it was also before i really got back to to faith and like you say it, at least like not thinking about it so much because you trust you trust god and you trust goodness mm-hmm. and it's it's going from being suspicious as you as you were speaking about to seeing more of of beauty in everything and um and i must warn people that that go into that there might be a lot of truth in in all these like elites and all these things that there mm-hmm. might be some some evil there but they're all they're all human and like we spoke about before with human beings every human being has this spark in them and i really don't believe it's it's completely lost in anyone and if you live um, in a way that we described and if you if you just try to spread your light in the best way possible, then I think that that might be the best way to to make the situation better. And being resentful about whatever's going on in the world, um, yeah. it can only worsen things almost. If you know what I mean, the spirit that yeah. the spirit that underpins the conspiracy theories, no matter whether they're val- whether they're valid or not, it's it's one of suspicion and resentment. And that's the main main reason I went away from that. I felt that it wasn't the right crowd, and you entering such a positive space uh, with the church that you mentioned. I think that's extremely, well, it's extremely beautiful to hear and uh, it's very encouraging. And so- uh, As you were talking just now, it occurred to me that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was surrounded by people who were wrapped up in a conspiracy theory. Yes, certainly. Right? <laughs> certainly, yeah. scapegoat for all their problems. Oh, yeah. But he looked out upon them and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do which is basically saying they're not the problem. They are 
being used as tools yes. by the problem, right? That's beautifully beautifully put because that's also a realization I had to make. And I think a lot of what Peterson has, has spoken about helped me with this realization is that evil is not people. Evil is within people and it's within you. Mm-hmm. And once you start identifying groups of people as evil, then then it goes down downhill so quickly. Uh, yeah. So beautifully put. Thank you. Yeah. Well, is there anything you would like to talk about before we wrap up? You want to tell people about your channel? Uh, well, yeah, it's not really fully formed yet. I'm trying to start with this this talk to go more of in the in the right direction. I've made some videos, like I said, with the ayahuasca thing. I've made some more other tiny videos, uh, shorter ones. Mm-hmm. If you want to learn a bit more about me, you can watch that. You can subscribe. I hope to to put out more more content um, with nice little nice conversations like this where you can really go into depth and I'm really ready to go into that direction. Um, so if you could link all of that down below, that would be great. Um, and Karen and I will be doing two more episodes. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, for a start, we might do more than that. Amazing. <laughs> um, it's been, uh, is, it's been really good. Will your channel have a particular theme? I think I'm, I'm going to figure it out as I go, but it's it's similar to yours where I saw the, the things that you were speaking about. I really try to uh, ask the deepest questions in life. So meaning is very, very central to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but also metaphysics, for example, and and funnily enough, the study of economics that we spoke mm-hmm. about as well, that we're going to have to talk about next time might be more relevant to that as well. Um, but I'm not uh, completely decided on it yet. We'll see. We'll see how it takes shape, but uh, thank you so much. Have you picked anyway. a Have you picked a title for it? For the channel? Yeah. I didn't even thought about that. I just have my name right now, but I could okay. like center it around the theme, I guess. But you're 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 laying some seeds, so uh, it's well, exciting. I will tell you one weird thing that happened when I chose the meaning code as the name of my channel, and uh, I have a daughter who's a techie, so I asked her to help me set it up so she helped mm. me set it up and then after that i had to learn how to run it but i found out that with with google and youtube and all that stuff that once mm-hmm. you choose a name that also becomes your gmail name so now all my email from all my friends yes comes the to them as the meaning code and lot and when i when that first started there they're like who is the meaning code they didn't even open their emails because they thought it was some weird thing so you have to be very careful when you pick the name of your channel. Uh, I hear you. Maybe I should, because uh, it's linked to like my personal email for everything. So yeah, I don't know. I might just keep it at the name for now. But yeah, uh, yeah there's a lot to think about. That's good. Yeah. Well, Lucas uh, Van Oss is a good name. So yeah, it's great. Yeah, this has been fantastic, Lucas. I'm so glad. Thank you, that you so asked so much. Me. And uh, and and for everybody else, I met up with at least 12 people at the conference that I'm going to do conversations with. So that's coming up. Amazing. Soon. Yeah. Yeah. Physicist and, and uh, businessmen. And I think it's incredible. By the scientists. Way. And- yeah. You are talking with these people with these theories. And I don't know, cause I, I from the videos that I've seen uh, of you, I mean, you're an artist. Uh, how, how is that for you to go into these, these complex metaphysical and physical theories and all these things 
Well, when you're I keeping first, up extremely well. When I first got onto Peterson, I didn't know anything. Yeah. And in order to read Peterson, you got to learn a lot of stuff. And yes. Then, and then he rewires your brain, and then oh, yeah. you're more able to learn stuff. Mm -hmm. And then because of my art background, I have this picture of a framework of the world mm -hmm. that I talked to Paul about on that first video. And that framework, in order for me to find out whether my framework was correct, yeah. I had to talk to people in all these different domains of knowledge to see whether on, I'm on the right track. Mm. So in order to talk to them, I had to read their their research papers and their books and and to talk about these ideas and so as i went i learned <laughs> amazing i think so, um you're definitely on the right path if you see that that it's overlapping and it's uh and it's true so that's beautiful well, and you know i think when i first had that talk with paul i thought oh who am I to have this big theory of everything? And I felt kind of embarrassed afterwards. And, and I always kind of like, didn't want to think about that talk, but the more I think about it now, the more I think that those things that I said, then they still hold true. You just heard oh, it absolutely. recently, right? Yeah. I was going to say before offline, we spoke about it. <clears throat> I listened to it twice and I, you have 15 minutes there, guys, please watch it. Karen lays out her, her way of thinking. And it's, it's incredible. And she thinks the same way. Peterson does where she takes you along this ride and once you're at the end you're like ah okay I get this get this person's thinking a bit better you did incredibly so please don't be embarrassed it was really really good well I'll link it I'll link the talk yeah please Paul. do yeah. please do because people are always asking me what is your big idea and I'm like I don't <laughs> know how to explain it it's I've got 350 episodes that lays it out <laughs> yes I think with you, if maybe getting it visual as well would maybe help because, you know, with the Peugeot brothers, they had these diagrams, the language of creation. It made yeah. it extremely more understandable. I've been would trying be a nice... to figure out how to do one. Do you do you know anybody who does visuals? Like I asked ChatGPT, oh, no. but it came <laughs> not ChatGPT. I asked uh, MidJourney. Okay. What it came up with was completely useless. So I'm not a very visual uh, person, nor am I very artistic. So I have everything to learn from you. Um, but I think it would definitely help getting it visual. Yeah. Well, at one point I ran into projective geometry and there are some similarities with the, the diagrams of projective geometry and yeah. I'm thinking, and there's certainly some similarities. I could probably rejigger the visuals from Wolfram's theory of everything. Mm. And um, speaking of theory of everything, did you hear Wolfram's oh, yeah. interview with Kurt Chimango? I, I got to tell you, I've listened to both of them over four times. Yeah. Uh, like I Wolfgang, think that's just the best. Yes, it's incredible. And that, like I said, I went down a rabbit hole with him already. We'll have the third episode where we'll speak about his work. I'm going to continue to dive into it until then. But he uh, he sparks something inside of me. It's also why, why we're here right now. Yeah, um, yeah amazing. Yeah. Really, really good talks. Okay, well, this has been so great. And so good, Karen. Uh, looking thank forward you. to the next episode, the next get together. Thank you, Lucas Van Oss, and thank you all thank the you, viewers. Karen. And if you're watching this far, please, um, it really helps if you like and if you make a comment. Mm -hmm. And if you don't like it, please make a comment that has feedback in it instead of disliking, because the dislike just tears the whole thing down in the algorithm so far. Oh, really? 
Yeah. Oh. I, I had some problem with some videos recently where a bunch of people jumped on and gave it down likes, and that just drags the whole percentage down. So I'm sorry too. Yeah. I, I I'm always looking for feedbacks. So if you got feedback, yeah. I'm I'm all great for that. And uh, all right. And look out for Lucas Van Oss's channel, which is coming in the future. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Karen. Okay, I'll see you soon. Bye-bye.